Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When it comes to fitness, what's real? How about when it really, truly fits your life? That's how anytime fitness sees it. Because our coaches see you. It's how they build personal plans that work wherever you are and focus on everything that matters, from fitness to nutrition to recovery. All so you can push yourself further than ever or just through the next rep. It's total 360 support for a real difference. That's Anytime Fitness. That's Real AF. Visit anytimefitness.com. But among other things, we'll find out about the offensive linesman. And I'm sorry, but I can't believe the call. Me neither. I cannot believe the call. Welcome to Any Given Wednesday, the podcast that really wishes the Super Bowl didn't insist on using Roman numerals, because I, I can't, you never have to understand what they mean unless you're looking at the Super Bowl. And it's the podcast that still doesn't fully understand what everyone is doing around the ball when a punt has been allowed to land. It just looks ridiculous. This week, we're going to be looking at one of the most successful dynasties in the history of the game, the San Francisco 49ers of the 1980s, led by Joe Montana and Steve Young. I am rookie NFL fan Tom Parry and I'm joined by my good friend and veteran NFL enthusiast. Think of him as the offensive lineman who is out in front blocking our confusion and clearing our path to the end zone of enlightenment. It's Mike Bubbins, everyone. (laughs) It's like the most tortured analogy of all time. Hey, Tom. (laughs) Hello, world. I was quite pleased when I wrote that. Jesus Christ. (laughs) How long did that take you? Hours? (laughs) Yeah, I've been up all morning, mate. Oh, my God. Uh, how you doing, I like Mike? to think of myself as a, as a fullback. I think myself as Tom Rathman to your Roger Craig. Look that up. Okay, there you go. I'll take that. I'll take that. We, I should say we've set up a Twitter account at any given wed pod, and we'll stick a link in the blurb. Um, so please get in touch. People have been getting in touch, and one of the things I'm quite interested in is obviously the big challenge of being a UK fan of the NFL mm. is. How do you go about watching it? You know, do you stay up all night on a Sunday? Do you record it? And I'm just interested, what are your viewing habits, Bubbins? Simon, in the interest of, of being frank with you and being honest with you and the, and the listeners, Simon phoned with our producer about half an hour ago. And if I'm brutally honest, I hadn't long been up because I watched I watched the games. I'm, I'm a Sunday night man. Yeah. Um, I, and then I, I recorded the end of the Seahawks game as well, so I'm watching that this morning. So we, I tend to watch... Until about midnight, one o'clock uh, on a Sunday, I recall what I miss. And then I'm, I'll be honest, I don't watch a Monday night game live. That's too late. I watch them on a Tuesday in the day. I record those and watch them in the day. Do you watch the whole games or do you tend to do the red zones? Because... Oh, I can't stand the red zone. The red zone like, is like the, the hundred in cricket. It's just anathema to me. So, no, I, I, don't, I can't stand that. 
I, I'm not enough. I'm not a moron enough to have to just see touchdowns. <laughs> I like seeing drives and defense and interceptions and, and you know third downs and and stops. Yeah, I, I don't. It's not basketball. It's kind of hard, I think, when you go from watching the red zone to then adjusting to try and watch a full game. You feel like you've got ADHD. I think it just gets you in the wrong mindset, spending too much time in the red zone. Red zone. I remember when Sky, a couple of years ago, there was uproar about it because they just showed red zone, remember? Yeah. About four or five seasons ago. Yeah. And there was the, the proper NFL fans were like, what are you doing? Give us the option of watching the red zone, by all means, but this is not, this is not football. This is not what I'm watching. The only reason I love the red zone is for Scott Hansen. The unflappable Scott Hansen who guides everyone through all the games in the NFL. I can't watch it. Too, it's too much for me. It's too, it's too full on. Let me just say he's a firm hand on the tiller. Um, oh, you are on fire today, man. I wish I had more sleep now because you were absolutely on fire. I've had three hours sleep. I think it's, it's sleep deprivation that's, wow. that's helping this. So, yeah, we have had people get in touch. Um, we asked people to get in touch to let us know why they support... Uh, the teams they support. Mm-hmm. Let's have a look. Vernon got in touch to say he's a Dolphins fan, so he really enjoyed the episode on the Dolphins. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I was in it. Dave got in touch, Dave on Lime Green, and he said, the reason I'm a Cowboys fan, my parents went to Dallas when I was young and came back with a cowboy hat and cap gun. There you go. Magic. My dad was also given the key to the city. I mean, that's a pretty good reason to support a team, isn't it? I mean, well, one of the things to drop in at the end. Also, my father's given the freedom of the city. Yeah. What was he doing over there? Was he like, was he JR? Who was he? Yeah, I don't know. You need more information, Dave. You need to get back in touch. Come on, Dave. And crucially, does the key to the city let you into the stadium? Also, it's a good place to get in touch so we can ask Bubbins the questions that you want to be asking. So, um, yeah. you know, look. There's no shame here. Part of the reason we set up this podcast is because, you know, I'm a new fan to the NFL. You're a gnarly old veteran. And Mm. look, it can be embarrassing sometimes to admit you don't know certain things or there's certain things that you don't understand. This is the safe space for you to get in touch. Bubbins will take care of you. Yeah, Stephen Cook's been in touch. He says, at any any given web pod, love the pod. Any chance you could explain the structure of the leagues... Rotation of teams, fixtures, etc. Thanks, lads. That's a big question, Bubbins. Do you want to take a little bit of it? I'll break it down quite. Uh, so there's four divisions in each conference. There's two conferences. So four teams per division. Right. Northeast, Southwest, American Conference, Northeast, Southwest, National Conference. And they're geographical. So then within right? your division, you're going to play the other three teams home, broadly geographical. There's, there's a historical element to it as well. So for instance, one of the big rivalries is Washington against Dallas. So even when they rejigged the leagues, which they've done over the years and the divisions, Dallas remained in the NFC East. So even though they're Texas, they still play in the NFC East. So there's a few of those that have got a historical basis why they, they remain local rivals in inverted commas, even though they're not geographically close to each other. So Northeast Southwest in the AFC, Northeast Southwest in the NFC. Play the other three teams in your division home and away. And there's six games. Then you play another division in your conference, home or away. So that's another four games, gives you 10. You then play another division in the other conference. That gives you another four games, gives you 14 games. And then there's two remaining games will be decided on how well you played the season before. So if you had a poor season, you're going to play the weaker teams, two weaker teams. If you won a Super Bowl, you'll play two of the stronger teams. You said, you said you haven't slept much and that you don't really... That, that, that was, that was, have you got that practiced? Do you, do, have you I, got that, did you learn that verbatim? Because that was really impressive, Mike. Thanks, mate. Well, I've been telling my son the exact same thing about 35 minutes ago. So 
Uh, it, I've, had, I've had a dry run, and that was the uh, that was the second one. It's like doing comedy, isn't it? I mean, it's always better second time around. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, you, you're going to play every three years. You you will end up playing everybody essentially. So, say an NFC North team was playing against the NFC East this year, and the AFC East. The next year they play against NFC South, AFC South. You know, so you're going to play every team every three years. You're going to play, you you play everybody, but you'll play your local, in inverted commas, rivals uh, every six season. times a year. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the one thing to be certain of. I mean, like already from that description, what we're really saying is it's not straightforward, is it? Bloody hell! Like you know, you can see why it is confusing. And well, not really. <laughs> I can I can wrap my head around the fact that you play your division and two other divisions quite easily. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, but I, he, I, I told me to cast aspersions, Tom, but it, you know, it's not going to be like university challenge level stuff. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, all, I, all I'm getting at is like, even you saying it's kind of geographical, but sometimes that's been changed to protect rivalries and things like already. Well, you got to think the teams not... also relocate, so and, yeah. and they're not going to rejig the whole, you know. Yeah, and it also leads to the slightly confusing thing. We, I was talking to producer Simon about it before you came on. Uh, it leads to the weird thing where, like, if you take the NFC East for example, there's a team. You know, no one's winning in the NFC East at the moment. Like the teams are no. having a shocking season, but no. obviously the top team in that division is going to go through to the postseason. Yeah. So you have a situation where, say, the Cowboys finish with only four wins this season, they will end up in the postseason if they top the NFC East. Yeah. There's another team from another division that will have won ten games that won't make it to the postseason, and that is quite strange. There's been four teams in the sort of modern era that have that have been in the playoffs with a losing record. There was a strike in the eighty two, that was only a nine game season, but I think Cleveland went through at four and five. I can't remember the other team. So two teams in eighty two. Carolina, maybe ten years ago, went through with seven nine. And I think Seattle oh it was it Seattle went through at seven and nine. And Carolina went through seven, eight and one. So yeah, they'll be the fifth team. If a team does win the NFC East with a losing record this year, they'll be the fifth team in the in the playoffs with a losing record. Yeah. But I don't mind that. People people have a have a cow about that, but that's fine because you have got the two wild cards as well. So they'll they'll end up playing a wild card team. Once you get in a playoff football, it's, it's you get what you deserve. So if they if they win that, great. Then they'll be in the division game. So if they don't, they'll be out. So. Don't panic. It's fine. There you go. So hopefully, Stephen, that's answered your question. We're about to look at the, the dynasty of the 49ers. And one of the things that really struck me when I was looking back over the old seasons was just how much, like, um, sure, they won the Super Bowl, but their, their wins against the Cowboys in the NFC Championship games mm. almost seemed more important to them at times. Well, it was weird for a long time. I mean, I'm talking at least 10 years. Uh, it seemed like... It seemed like any, uh, I remember thinking that an AFC team would never win a Super Bowl again. It just went NFC, 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 NFC with these big dynasties of uh, Dallas and the Bears had a great side. Then you have San Francisco. So those NFC Championship games were were usually better games in the Super Bowl because there was two better teams. Yeah. And what it means, I think one of the big dangers of a fledgling American football fan is when you're Mm. asked, who do you think is going to be in the Super Bowl this season? And you give the two best teams... And you get called up on the fact that that's an impossible fixture for the Super Bowl. You pick the same conference, yeah. Yeah. At which point I usually stop talking to you. What you're saying there... Absolute NFL snob. Yeah, that's exactly the thing that... I snort with derision and walk off. Yeah, so that's my (laughs) advice to some of our listeners is... Learn that bit first, right? Get that bit right, at least. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spend a bit of time with your NFC and your AFC so that should you get caught in a conversation with Bubbins in a bar... 
You don't you don't end up making a fool of yourself. I, I will publicly belittle you. <laughs> yeah, because that is yeah. that is the risk. That is definitely the risk. Please get in touch at any given wed pod. Before we crack into this week's topic, you're obviously broadcasting live from Bubbins Bar, yeah. filled with um NFL memorabilia. Is there anything yeah. you want to bring to the table this week? Yeah, I will. I do another podcast uh can, I, can we cross pollinate? Can I mention the other one? I think you're going to. No, you can mention it, of course. No, you can. that's fine. It's fine. No, no, no. It's just probably going to talk about it. I won't mention it. Uh, <laughs> and one of the listeners there, I mentioned Dick Butkus was my um, favourite player. Have I mentioned this? I haven't, I haven't mentioned this thing before. No. I mentioned that Dick Butkus, even though he's a Chicago Bear, was my favourite football player. Great. And uh, he got in touch and said, with this photograph of this signed NFL football, signed by Dick Butkus, I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. On his bookshelf, he said, oh, see, "What gets even better?" He says, "Is my wife won it in Las Vegas at a poker tournament? This is the prize." I said, "Oh, well, well. I said, I'm, so "I'm quite jealous. That's lovely." In a lovely presentation case and everything else, signed all the certificates, everything by Dick Buckers. Anyway, and then he just said, uh, "Do you know what? I really enjoy the podcast. You obviously love football. I'll send it to you." So then, two days later, this bloody like registered delivery, this football turns up, which is. Ah, it's a thing of beauty. It's a, it's a full-size NFL football signed by Dick Buckus in a display case, which has got pride of place in my bar. And I'm extremely grateful to a chap called Geraint for sending it to me. So what you're saying, Mike, is there are listeners out there who, when they enjoy a podcast, decide to yes. send the presenters <laughs> yeah. NFL yeah. memorabilia for free, just yeah. from the kindness of their home, or just to say that they uh, appreciate the podcast. That, yeah, that's and I think they become our friends then. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. So, um, you know, just bear that in mind, listeners. That's a great story, yeah. Mike. I'm glad you brought that up so early on in our podcasting. <laughs> well, I don't feel obliged to send us anything nice. But it, but, you know, know. it greases the wheels. It greases it the wheels. That's fine. My, my dick butt can sign football. Beautiful. Going back to the Roman numerals off the top there, Tom. Oh, yeah. Again, it's not, it's not a huge stretch, is it? <laughs> I wondered, I wondered, I wondered whether you'd have something to discuss there at the top. Obviously, Super Bowl Fifty went back to uh, just being fifty. I just think when you're looking quickly, and it's like, oh, they won Super Bowl. What? Why? What, yeah. Why are you showing off by using Roman numerals? Like, a, showing it's, off. It's a modern. It's a modern invention. Do you get annoyed every time you see like a BBC program at the end? Do you, th- do you throw stuff at the TV? When they got the date in Roman numerals, you hate that. I just think you think about Americans. You think about American spelling of things. Like if they can simplify something, they do mm. with everything apart from saying what Super Bowl it is. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Do you think you're up on your Roman numerals because of the Super Bowl? Then I used to love watching as a kid watching TV programs and working out the longest. So the MCMLXXXVIII, nineteen eighty-eight was the longest Roman numerals on a BBC program. Couldn't wait to see it two thousand mm. It's just amazing. Are you Rain Man? (laughs) (laughs) I like a Roman numeral, Tom. And I'm not afraid to admit it. I like that, mate, Mike. I tell you what, we should start using Roman numerals for our episode numbers then. I think that's. Of course we should. (laughs) That's it. Of course we should. So from now on. So what we know? I, I, I. From now on, this is. Yeah, well, this is episode now. IV, isn't it? Are you on IV already? The IV wow. drip, as we know. Yeah, this is. If we get to 50, we'll just call it 50, yeah. like the NFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go then. If. if. See, that's a bit of faith there with the podcast. <laughs> it's Roman numerals from here on in. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely down I for that. I love that. That's great. <laughs> Ep- episode IV. <laughs> 
come on. Yeah, great. Let's crack into the subject of this week's episode, because it's a big one. It is one of the grandest dynasties. Now, I'm going to say dynasties. Do you say dynasties? It's like it's like either and either. It's, it's, whatever I heard last is what, probably what I'll say. Yeah. So I'll probably call it a dynasty now, because you used a dynasty. One of the great dynasties of the game it is the 1980s San Francisco 49ers. <sighs> a huge topic, really. I'm really interested to see what we cover, because I imagine there will be stuff to come back to in later episodes. To kick things off, I was going to ask mm. you, what, what constitutes a dynasty? Because I think it's one of the things I think the NFL has got really right, you know, that there have been great dynasties. From what I can gather, it's it's teams that win three Super Bowls within a certain amount of time, would you say? I think three's about right, yeah. You don't really... Um, no one's ever won it three times in a row in the modern era, obviously. But, um, yeah, three Super Bowls gives you a dynasty, I would say. I think that's fair. And kind of under the same kind of with this, with sort of the same group of players. Yeah, so like the, least... the, the Packers, um, the Packers now, the modern Packers are not a dynasty. Yeah, they've they've been, they're consistently a good team. They've won, they've won two Super Bowls with two different quarterbacks. But like the '60s Packers would have been a dynasty, like six championships in ten years. Yeah, so the Steelers in the '70s, and then. Uh, the Cowboys, you could say, were a dynasty, but the Forty Nine ers certainly in the eighties were a dynasty. Yeah, yeah, and, and and obviously the modern, the modern dynasty is the Patriots, isn't it? And it is. the, the, the it Belichick is. era at the Patriots is kind of that's what I find fascinating about the NFL because of how it's structured with pay caps and drafts. It makes having a dynasty such an incredible achievement, right? Because one of yeah. the skillful things about the game, which is different to British soccer, is it is designed for franchises to experience kind of a cycle of success and yeah. failure, isn't it? Because there's no promotion or relegation, it would be pretty joyless if you if you supported a side that maybe weren't from one of the wealthier media markets and you just knew that you would never win anything. You know, you're never going to go down, you're never going to go up, you're just going to be mediocre forever. So the way the NFL is set up to stop that happening is that there is parity. So the salary cap, like you said, the draft... Um, even the schedules, we mentioned the schedules off the top. Even your extra games are going to be decided by how well you played the season before. So it is hard. The upside of that is that you can have a 2-14 and 14 team or a 1-15 and 15 team like the Cowboys that then end up winning a Super Bowl within two or three years. You know That can happen and does happen. Yeah. Uh, the flip side of that is that to repeat is, is really difficult. Um, and, and then to three-peat, as they call it, has never been done. There's never been a team that's won three years in a row. Um, obviously, your schedule is going to be harder. You're going to have the last pick in the draft, all these things. Also, all your players want to get paid more. So but you've got a salary cap. But you're now a Super Bowl champion, so you want to be paid the going rate for a Super Bowl champion. That doesn't. That can't happen. So your general manager is going to have to let expensive players go and good players go. It's a real team effort. One of the America's games, we, we mentioned those in the pod before, they're great, they're great docs. Um, on the one of the Dallas ones, I can't remember which one it was, they always pick three players, three ex-players. But in the Dallas one, they picked a, the general manager and, and two players. In the NFL, the general manager tends to be the person who makes the personnel decisions. If you haven't got that right as well, you just can't keep a team together. Yeah, you know, There's so much like horse trading and manoeuvring going on to, to, to make things work. So, so what you needed, what, what San Francisco had, was a really good team with really good team spirit, with a really good coach, a really understanding owner, 
and a really good general manager. And if you get all those things, you've got a chance. Yeah. And a superstar quarterback. It does help to have one of the best. Do you know what? I'm, we've, we'll probably get up to this in a bit anyway. And I love John Montana. I think he's, he's, a, he's top five for me. But also top five for me would be Steve Young. And I think, and this is, this is sacrilege to say this to some 49ers fans, I think Steve Young's a better quarterback than Joe Montana. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Here we go. There we go. It's Here been said. Go. It's out loud. It's been said. I love this, Mike. This is, this is going to drive people. Simon, the producer, has given me what I'm going to describe as a death glare at this particular moment in time on Zoom. And we should say he's giving you a death glare over the top of a signed Joe Montana <laughs> yeah. San Francisco 49ers helmet. I mean, don't get me. I think Joe Montana is one of the all-time greats. I, you just said top five. You, hang on. Say, so you said top yeah. five quarterbacks of all time. Yeah. yeah. He's not in the top two. No. That's insane. He's got to be in the top two. Well, why has he got to be? I got Rogers. I got to get Rogers in there. You got Rogers with one. You got, you got to get Brady in there. You've got Rogers in there with one Super Bowl ring. Yes, correct. Above Joe Montana with four Super Bowl rings. It's a team sport, Thomas. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I think this is this is a conversation we'll have at the end. Let's have a conversation with that at the end. Let's, of have, this. A, let's have an episode XV. Let's do the best quarterbacks ever. Yeah, Montana is absolutely brilliant, right? By any stretch, by any measure, he'll be pleased I to hear that. I just happen to Mike. think they were so so fortunate to be able to sign Steve Young. To have Steve Young come in and after Joe Montana was like when Aaron Rodgers came in after Brett Favre. Right, but probably even better. Probably even better, yeah, because they've won more Super Bowls. So life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Let's not put the cart before the horse. At the start of the 80s, San Francisco 49ers were a joke, joke team. They won, mm-hmm. you know, they had a losing record. They only won two games in the, in the 79 season. And they were, you know, the fans celebrated as if they'd won the Super Bowl. They kind of invaded yeah. the pitch. They pulled down the, the posts. They carried, the, the team carried the coach, Bill Walsh, off the, t- off the field as if they'd won the Super Bowl because they were such a useless uh, outfit. Yeah. And as you said, you know, with a brilliant draft, and with you know the head coach Bill Walsh, kind of this brave new kind of vision for the team, it all changed. Yeah, but part of that was at quarterback they had Joe Montana. When he finally came to my bar, Tom, you'll see the pride of place on my ceiling of, of fame. I've got a I've got a ceiling that's entirely NFL uh, players, posters of, in pride of place, 
the top three, I've got Peyton, Montana, and Elway. They're on the first row. So, and then the middle of the first row is Montana. So he's got he is, he is he's got number one position on my ceiling for one thing. He's got number one right. position on your ceiling, but not on your goat list. No. Okay. Correct. <laughs> okay. Well, well, and he's a real. Do you know what? There's so many uh, parallels between him and Tom Brady as well. Montana talks about when he was in Notre Dame. He went to Notre Dame, as they say in America. He worked out at one time. I think he was the seventh choice quarterback. So he was. He was always seen as maybe didn't have the physical gifts. Maybe he wasn't strong enough. Maybe he didn't have a strong enough arm. Maybe he didn't have this. Didn't have that. Well, I'm sorry. They called him. You know, all the team called him Bird Legs, didn't they? Because he was such yeah. a gangly. He looked like a basketball player. They said. And if you think about Brady, and where Brady was drafted, and, and Brady at the combine, and all, they, they said a lot of the same things about Brady. He wasn't an athlete, right? What they both have, as, as well as a, a lot of Super Bowl rings was just incredible football intelligence. Until you know a little bit about the NFL and how it works, you don't realise just how complex that position is to play. I can't think of another position in sport, any sport, where you need to have the brain that you need for an NFL quarterback to be able to see a game and understand a game like they understand a game. Because when you see, when you see teams and you think, well, just bench the quarterback, he's hopeless. But get someone better in there. The, the fact is... It's a 32-team league. There aren't 32 players in the world that can play that position at the top level. They just, they just don't exist. Yeah, that's incredible, right. isn't it? You know, so that's so when you say put someone better, and there is no one better often, this, this is the thing. So when you have a quarterback that is exemplary, you build a team around it because they are so rare. So someone like Montana comes in, you're going to build a team around Montana. And Bill because, Walsh did, didn't he? He built what he built the West Coast offense, as it was known. Yeah, it was great and, to watch. And that. that was kind of Bill Walsh's vision for how the game should be played. One of the interesting yeah. storylines that kind of emerges in this kind of the start of the eighties is at the time the most successful way to play the game was what people call smash mouth football, which yeah. is kind of like a great expression, you know. Yeah. But the, the 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 dynasty of the Pittsburgh Steelers in the seventies had been smash mouth football. It had been brutal running the running game and a really <laughs> intense defense. Three yards and a cloud of dust. Yeah. So it, yeah, a strong running game and a and a, and a savage defense. And, but what Bill Walsh did. We'll, we'll get to people like Jay Rice in a second. But even before that, he started using, with that West Coast offense, basically using the pass as a run. So it wasn't all about big bombs downfield. He was looking at those little eight, six, eight, ten-yard passes. So you're moving the ball upfield in short distances, but using the pass, not the run. And that's, what, that, that's the thing about Montana, I think. That you said about the comparisons between Montana and Brady. That's how I think of Brady as well. And you kind yeah. of, you know, you realise how the Belichick-Brady kind of dynasty is so indebted to what Bill Walsh and Joe Montana do at the start of the 80s. Yeah, and people think that that's, that is like a backhanded compliment or, or you're trying to take away from someone's capabilities by saying that. And you're not. I mean, I'm sure Joe Montana could throw the ball a long way and did. But, but, but that wasn't that offence. That offence was like the Patriots. It, it was that quick, short a lot of crossing routes, just moving the ball, moving the ball, moving the ball. But you need to be so switched on mentally to, to play like that. Was the star of the show, Bill Walsh, was he the mastermind of the West Coast offence or was it Joe Montana? I heard an incredible thing. Double check if this is true. But I was told that in 10 years of the Bill Walsh-Joe Montana relationship, he 
didn't give him the game ball once. Really? Yeah. That Joe Montana was never given the game ball. And I think that like that Joe Montana actually didn't mind that because he wasn't. He wasn't this kind of egotistical superstar quarterback throwing, like you said, the Hollywood passes. Mm. You know, he was a guy who was the kind of the brain pulling the strings of yeah. this incredible kind of West Coast offense. And it wouldn't have been because they, they didn't get on because I think they, they got on well as a, as a coach and a quarterback. Yeah, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I read. And, 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 you know, one of the things they say about Joe Montana is like, and again, the Brady comparisons there is, you know, he was king of the two-minute drill. You know, it gets, you know, by mm. two-minute drill for, you know, the new listeners, it's kind of like there's two minutes left. You know, you've got the ball back in your... You in your what I would yeah. love to see, I, I, I've never seen a den in an NFL in an actual game. But when you see reconstructions where you're looking through the eyes of the quarterback. Yeah. So, what, I mean, you watch a two-minute drill uh, on TV and it's impressive. When you're at eye level, so you're not above the field. You're just you're looking at twenty-one blokes on a field, a lot of them huge, right? To see what they see as quickly as they see it, and to be able to react like that is just something else. I mean, it- there was an extraordinary thing. I, I was I was watching a Steve Young interview. So Steve Young, everyone is the quarterback who kind of succeeded uh, Montana. And for Slightly a while, better. For a while. So, well, well. And, and they kind of got to that stage of who, you know, when was Steve Young going to take over from, uh, from Joe Montana? Steve Young said... What the way, a dilemma to have. The way Bill Walsh coached the quarterback position, he said yeah. it was like learning dance, right? So he yeah. said, depending on what play you're running, he said you, it was all about footwork. And so Bill Walsh would coach. Obviously, you take three steps back, then you check, then you take another two steps back. And so Steve Young said that the way he was taught was if they were running a certain play, he would know if he had only taken three steps back, he should be going to option one because option one will be open. But if he takes two more steps back, then option two and three come into play. Right. And so like it, it became like he said, it was like a dance, you know, where you kind You're of choreographed. Yeah. yeah. So it's completely choreographed and his timing was completely in his footwork. And, and, and like there's there's footage of. That's interesting. Bill Walsh watching Joe Montana and watching Steve Young and he talks about them and it is like watching like Strictly where you kind of go like, you know, he's saying, look at that footwork, look how beautiful his footwork is, look how nimble he is. That was the key to his quarterback's game rather than what you think of a quarterback which is kind of like Dan Marino, kind of like this huge arm being able to throw these kind of Hollywood passes. Fascinating. What comes into play there as well, and a lot of sacks are people not getting rid of the ball in time and not having that internal clock that a Brady or a Montana had absolutely down pat, which is to know your offensive line, to know the defence, to know how long you've got. You watch a number of times that Montana gets rid of a ball right before he's hit. There's a play that really encapsulates that and it kickstarts the dynasty of the 49ers right. and it happens in the 81 season in the NFC Championship And it is the San Francisco 49ers against the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys have been the dominant team in the NFC uh, for the last few seasons. And there's one of the most famous plays in NFL history called the catch. Oh, man. And it is, you know, I think think if you ask people, if you ask fans of the game to list kind of the most famous plays, the catch is kind of, well, would it make your top five? That's the question. But uh, I... (laughs) Every day of the week, yeah. Well, Dwight Clark, the bloke who caught that, who sadly passed away fairly recently, young, 
very young, like 62 years of age. Mm. A great player, but that, that play just became absolutely iconic. That image of him reaching up to catch that ball. They talk about momentum in, in games all the time. That really was the start of the dynasty right there, that, that catch. It's one that of the, Dwight Clark yeah. catch in the end zone is, is, is what I think kicked off that San Francisco 49ers dynasty. Bill, Bill Walsh described it as the birth of Camelot. Oh, don't mind oh, that. Come on, have a bit of that, please. Don't mind that. It's kind of the, oh. the thing about the, the catch as a play. The first time I saw it, because obviously, I, I, I mean, like I was just YouTubing uh, great plays uh, a couple of years ago, and it says the catch. And so in my head, I'm expecting it to be the most spectacular catch I've ever seen. You know, like mm. I was expecting like an, a, Odell, Beckham an Odell Beckham kind of miracle catch or, you know, yeah. the helmet catch. It is worth saying it's not that spectacular no. a catch, but it is no. just what it represented that made it such an incredible play. Third and three, Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. The, the way the, the, it plays out is Montana kind of gets flushed out of his pocket. He's kind of moving. He's got players coming on him. It looks like he's about to get sacked. And then out of nowhere, this pass comes across the top. And the, But that also is, that was the design of the play. You know, Bill yeah. Walsh said, this is exactly how this is going to play out. And it did. I mean, I don't, I don't want to put too much of a downer on things. Um, <laughs> we, talk about, we, we talked about an owner getting a team, and that's, but then that's part of that jigsaw. Uh Eddie DeBartolo, who was the 49ers owner then, just seemed to get on great with his players and have a great relationship with his players. And so Dwight Clark, who caught the catch, had motor neuron disease and passed away, like I said, a year or two ago. Yeah. When he died, I mean, he, he remained friends with DeBartolo after he finished playing. And DeBartolo moved the old Candlestick Park, which I loved. I loved that ground as well. He moved the Candlestick Park goalpost uh, from the end zone where the catch was caught into his ranch. Wow. So, he, so the actual goal pusher in his ranch. And then Dwight Clark's ashes are buried where he caught the pass in relation to those goal posts on DeBartolo's ranch, which I just, I've got goose pimples thinking about that now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Why, why some, like you said, you, you look at it and, you, and it isn't the most spectacular catch in the world, but it's weird how things can, can, can just grab the imagination. Yeah. And that became immortalised, right? And it, and it is a, it's a beautiful image as well. You know, he's a yeah. He's he's he, it's a huge leap, and he's he's got both his hands above his head, and, yeah. and, and the fact that it was like against the Cowboys, if like it, it's amazing that for the the catch didn't win them the Super Bowl, it won them the NFC Championship game, as we were saying earlier. But that was but they, like I said, they the they were better point. games then. Yeah, they tended to be better games through through the eighties. Those NFC Championship games, and they went on to win the Super Bowl. And that was the birth of the dynasty. Ronnie Lott, who is um, part of the secondary, uh, part of the defense, he 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 described it as like that was the birth of Joe Montana. You know that that was when Joe Montana became Joe Montana, nice. and from then on he was kind of one of the names and remains. You know, like one of the names. I think even you ask people who don't know anything about the NFL uh, to name players, they'll name Joe Montana. Yeah, and I think it's it's like a lot of things. It's it's belief in it, it's, and you can you can blag it as much as you want to, but when you actually know that you deserve to be what doing what you're doing, so there'll be a turning point in a career where you you see a player think he gets it now. He he understands how good he is. He's not just he's not just saying it for the cameras and to get a bigger contract and 
to make a soundbite on the post-match thing. He actually understands it, right? He deserves to be there. So he would, he would have gone to that Super Bowl then just so full of confidence and belief. And then that the team feeds off that, especially with the quarterback, right? Especially with the quarterback. When you've got that real leader then that the team look up to. Yeah. We talked about any given Sunday, didn't we, recently. There's the whole bit when Pacino says about you, you, it's just different a quarterback. And people people look up to you. You are the leader in the in the locker room. And he was, you know, they called him the comeback kid. They called him Joe Cool. And like all the descriptions of the amount of times that team <clears throat> were down in the fourth quarter, and they would be, and, and you know, it's something we we see in the modern game. We see it with Aaron Rodgers. We see it with Tom Brady, where. It doesn't matter if you're down. It doesn't matter if there's only two minutes on the clock because you know the ball is going into the hands of Joe Montana and he can get you up the field and he can get you to score. And they just said they yeah. just absolutely believed that that's, that's the way it would play out. And that team as well, the way, the way that the drafts and the trades went, what a I mean, so much talent on that 49ers team. And that would be while I was just getting into football, teenager, you know, the Channel 4 years. And they were such a glamorous team. They all looked great. Yeah. Candlestick Park was a great looking ground. It was they all seemed to be playing in the sunshine because it was in California. You mentioned Ronnie Lott, but I mean, so you had Montana, you had Ronnie Lott, you had Dwight Clark, Jerry Rice, of course. I mean, Roger Craig, Christ. I mean, they were just a fabulous team to watch. What they also had was was a really good running game, even though they played that West Coast offense. You had someone like Roger Craig, who was a fabulous running back. Yeah. You know, they, so they they could if they if they needed to go to the, to the to the ground, they could do that. They just—it was just a complete package, and that really stingy defense. And of course, you got and then you got Bill Walsh calling the shots. One of one of the, the great football minds. It's really fascinating looking at Bill Walsh's career and what he did there because he kind of reinvented the way the game was played and the way that kind of story played out of like smash mouth football against the finesse, you know, of his mm. kind of design of how a team can can score played out and ultimately he transformed the way the game was played. It wasn't big throws. It wasn't long bombs. It wasn't, that's not what it was about. It was, it was really intelligent, really quick football. Can I tell you a quick story that I, I found out this week watching uh, a, a, a Bill Walsh documentary? The, the team was talking about how, at times, he would choreograph the, the whole kind of, they would say, these are the first 15 plays we're going to run yeah. in this game. And so the team, like almost like, like a script would mm. know the first 15 plays they would play if they won the yeah. toss. And against the Giants, um, I think it was like 84 or something, the 49ers win the toss. And so Bill Walsh pretended that his headphones weren't working and that he could no longer communicate with his quarterback because under the rules, if that happens, the other team have to stop using their communications as well. Right, so oh, so the 49ers win the toss, and because he's already told his team <laughs> what the first fifteen plays are going to be, he doesn't need to communicate with Joe Montana. So he says, "Oh, my 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 comms have broken." So they took the comms off the Giants, and they couldn't do anything to stop the 49ers. Oh, and because because the team just knew what plays they were going to run, it's like it's that. like ne- next level genius. I've never heard that before. That's amazing. Yeah, but, but like what it, what it really helped. For me, like obviously as a, as a relative newbie to the game, what it helped me clarify was like the relationship between the coach and the quarterback, and like you said, like the 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 amount of the the extent that football can be like a game of chess. You know that it can yeah, be like, it and that's what makes it such a fascinating sport. You know, 
Well, a lot of the, the criticism you get from people who aren't fans, if, if you're not a fan of the NFL or American football, that's fine. You know, but don't don't feel the need to tell me about it. So I'll think you're a knob. <laughs> Right, just just get on with not being a fan. It's absolutely fine. Right? Also, if you're not a fan of the NFL, how are you still listening to this? How, how are you 40 minutes into an episode entirely about the San Francisco 49ers? A lot of things that get, that get thrown at it as a criticism by by a lot of British fans are things that I I love about the game. So when they say oh it's it's two stop start, well, a that's just lazy, right? It's not it's not two stop start, but there are plays so. You know, it is strategy. There is, it, it is like violent chess. I love that. I love that about it. You know, I, I love the fact it takes three hours because I've got nothing better to do on a Sunday than sit around my friends watching football games. I love it. I've never done anything that I've, I've enjoyed and couldn't wait for it to be over. You know, what's the point? I don't, I don't want to last half an hour because I'm really enjoying it. If it lasts fucking six hours, even better, right? <laughs> Uh, what's the point <laughs> oh it's too long isn't it not if you're enjoying it not if you're enjoying it mate <laughs> um, oh my god Violent Chess is great Violent Chess could have been the title for this podcast <laughs> I think it's good when they run a, a, an offence like Bill Walsh did as well but what people don't realise especially if you're keeping that same personnel on the field and you're running those 15 plays quickly with that sort of those short routes and everything it's knackering for the defence and they and they can't they can't change they can't bring they can't uh, substitute their players if you're not substituting players the defence can't substitute players so you, you're, what you're doing is you're keeping the defence on the field you're keeping them moving you're keeping that the, the big fellas having to move all the time it's, it's knackering yeah. and then when they get tired that's when you start seeing the, the gaps they won the Super Bowl in 81 and then they won it again in 84 and by that point obviously they'd established themselves as one of the great teams. The the 84 Super Bowl is worth mentioning because it was Dan Marino versus Joe yeah. Montana. I really feel like it's going to be a great matchup, but I do have to agree with OJ. I think the 49ers going into this football game are the team that'll probably be the team that'll come out on top. And the reason why is because defenses have been dictating the tempo of Super Bowls for many years. And I don't really see it changing in this particular football game. Marino is a great one, but I just don't think that offenses can carry you entirely through a season. The defense of the 49ers, they do it all. Joe Montana, if the 49ers do get ahead, does have the ability with the running backs, with the wide receivers, to control the tempo of the game. This is one area where I don't necessarily feel that the Miami Dolphins have that particular strength. Yeah, oh, what a clash. Which you kind of think like that is... That's the dream, what isn't it? Clash. You kind of go like, how often is it where, you know, like recently we had like Aaron Rodgers against Tom Brady, uh, you know, this season, and they really big up yeah. those big moments. For it to land in the Super Bowl and for it to be, you know, Joe Montana, Joe Cool against the, the, the kind of new superstar quarterback, Dan Marino. Does Dan Marino feature in your top five uh, quarterback list? Well, this goes back to you, you throwing Super Bowl rings at me. For me... I, yeah, probably he does. I, I, I know he never won, he never won the big one, but what a player! I'm sure we'll have a we'll have a chat about Marino another time. But um, the, the loo that we use when we're watching NFL, the the outside toilet, is called uh, obviously Americans call the, the the toilet the John sometimes. I was just called the Dan. It's because I used to have a huge Dan Marino poster in there, uh, which is now sadly we we got an extension built and it, we had to knock it down unfortunately. But there's a new uh, poster of Dan Marino in the Dan. And when I went to see my sister in Pittsburgh, uh, I went to go see the Packers play the Steelers. But what I really wanted to see was Dan Marino's house where he grew up. Because he's a Pittsburgh boy. Yeah. 
So she took me. We drove down there to see Dan Marino's parents' place. And you can see the, like, the strip of grass outside his house where he used to throw the football around as a kid. That Montana Marino Super Bowl, it was like a Hollywood script. Yeah. I mean, even the name sounded great, Montana Marino. It, it, was, it was the South East against the Northwest. It was you know, the two Sunshine teams. It was bloody hell, that was, it's per- that yeah. was proper. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, but what the, what the Dolphins had, and it's not a Dolphins podcast, this one, but they had the deep threat and Marino had a cannon arm on him. And they had the Killer Bees defence, didn't they? They called themselves the Killer Bees. Yeah, so that was... And what a win. I mean, that was... But, yeah, look, you know, uh, they came out of it. Dan Marino got sacked four times through two interceptions. Shooter against Walsh. That You know, that really cemented kind of Joe Montana's place as just the greatest. That They said about the 84 team, and this is something that keeps coming up when you talk about the 49ers of the 80s that they had like a kind of all business, you know, they, they they sometimes get described as being like a machine or being detached or being like a team that, you know, hated losing more than they liked winning. They did exactly the same thing with the Patriots and with, with Belichick and Tom Brady, the same thing. You know, this sort of joyless football, this the machine thing's been leveled at them as well, which I think is... Out of bollocks, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. I, mean, I, I just think it's out of balls. I mean, that, what what the 49ers had was was a really good team spirit. Machine-like feels like one of the best compliments you could pay to a to an American football team. Oh, you, you, you're, like a, you're like a machine. Brilliant. <laughs> yes, please. Where's the Super Bowl ring? Thank you. <laughs> it's really interesting because obviously 81-84, and then, but I think the one that obviously we've talked about, you need three Super Bowls to become a dynasty, but the one that really made them great, that really made them the team of the 80s, was the 88 Super Bowl because then you're getting into this really fascinating soap opera where Joe Montana is starting to age. People are starting to question whether he's still got it. They've yeah. they've 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 got a new quarterback waiting to take over, Steve Young, who is mm-hmm. like you said, a you know a brilliant talent, amazing player, and everybody is asking you know when is Steve Young going to take over, and there's this kind of incredible season where there's a soap opera of sometimes they're starting Steve Young, sometimes they're starting Joe Montana. There's a question mark over who's going to have the starting quarterback place. But even that, even that is such good. Um, Front office, the general manager and the and the personnel people and the coach. It might be uncomfortable for Montana at the time, right? But your job is to keep that team winning. So when they went from Montana to Steve Young, Steve Young was a hell of a player. I mean, people people because he didn't have as long or a storied a career as Montana. Watch some Steve Young clips. Watch some Steve Young. YouTube some Steve Young and watch how good a quarterback he was. Um, when they had the USFL, quite famously, I think he was the. It, w- it would have been the highest played player in football if the USFL hadn't folded. I think he was. I think he signed for forty million dollars at the time with the, with the LA Express and the USFL. And then when the league folded, he came into the NFL. One of the things they what? said about the way Bill Walsh ran the, the Forty Niners is he would cut players a year before they were past their prime, and like, Ronnie Lott said, one of the things that that brought about was that no one felt safe. And like yeah. there were players who were extremely established, and it's something Belichick did at the Patriots incredibly well. Was like just as players thought they'd have just won a Super Bowl, they were yeah. established, they just won the NFC Championship, and yet they'd be cut the next season. You know, like so even the great Joe Montana, by bringing in Steve Young, he knew he had to fight for his place. You know, it's a real kind of Hollywood script story, really, where 
they won the Super Bowl in 88 with Joe Montana kind of retaining the starting yeah. quarterback position. And this is where there's a brilliant story um, of Joe Montana in the 88 Super Bowl. They were down something like five points with a minute and a half on the clock. And they're in the huddle uh, on their own 10-yard line. They know they have to go 90 yards to kind of score. And um, they're in the huddle. They're just about to start the drive. And everyone's kind of nervous. And they all look to Joe Montana. And Joe Montana says, hey, guys, look look down the field there. You see there in the end zone. That's, that's John Candy. You know John Candy? And they, the film star. <laughs> uh, and they all turn around and look. And there's John Candy. And... In that moment, they all think, oh, and then they just start the drive and they, they realise that Joe Montana is just, got this. he's so relaxed that that's what he's thinking about. He's thinking, oh, look, there's John Candy. Uh, and like, um, <laughs> it's an incredible story. I was watching, um, I mean, you know, having a newborn baby, I'm, I'm up all hours watching uh, any films that I can get my hands on uh, that are NFL related. I watched Draft Day. Like with Kevin Costner in. I don't even. Oh, treat yourself. I mean, (laughs) if you want to see a film where Kevin Costner plays the general manager of the Cleveland Browns on draft day, oh. That's the film for you, is it? But he he tells that. I mean, that that is niche. Genuinely, I watched it. I watched it three days after my daughter had been born and I burst into tears when they signed. They signed the quarterback that they wanted to sign at the end. Oh man, a real a real low point for me. A real, real tea jerker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A tear jerker. But he tell he tells that story as the most. Don't watch Waterworld for God's sake. <laughs> Waterworks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he told that story in, in like the the midpoint of the film as like the inspirational moment where he kind of the team all oh, realized. You know what? When I was living in Toronto, okay. yeah, John Candy was one of the owners of the Toronto Argonauts in the CFL. Oh yeah. So so I was at the game the. When John Candy died, the Argonauts played the whole of that season with a with a with a JC sil a gold star on their jersey for John Candy. And in the first game of the season, I was always, always at the Sky Dome watching the Argonauts play. And they bloody talk about a mood killer. They bring his his uh, I think it was either his mum or his widow out under half at half time to present him with like a John Candy jersey with candy on the back of it, you know. And then they put the jumbotron on. And they just show bits from like playing strange automobiles, <laughs> and there's the bit at the end where he's playing Dal Griffith, and he's and he's he's back at he's back at Steve Martin's place for Thanksgiving, right? Which is a really sad bit of the film, anyway. <laughs> so they got like John Candy's widow being given a John Candy jersey with a massive still photograph on the jumbotron of John Candy in the saddest part of the film, and then they play the second half. You're like, oh god, it was. People are like in tears, like 50,000 people in tears. Like Bubbins, is that the way you look at minutes, when people have minutes silenced? You go, oh, bloody hell, what a, mo- <laughs> what a mood killer. Move on. <laughs> Come on, oh, guys, you're really God. killing my game buzzing. <laughs> oh, what a mood killer. I've almost the NFL here. <laughs> oh, God, that's really got me. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle.
What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice oh, by that point. Dear, dear. The greatest wide receiver to ever play the game? I mean, it'd be hard. you'd be hard-pressed to think of someone better. Oh, there we I go. can't think of anyone top of my head. I mean, there's, there's other great receivers. Like, I think a lot of other great receivers. I, there's no one that I think, oh, he's better than Jerry Rice. That's never happened. I watched a brilliant interview with Jerry Rice where he says, I mean, I could sit here and say I'm the greatest player to ever play the game. With everything I've achieved, but uh, you know I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> I kind of thought, well, you have just said it, haven't you, Jerry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. Pick me that sort of person. Go and Google, listeners. If anyone deserves to be cocky, though, it is Jerry. I was going to say, go and Google um, some Jerry Rice montage clips. Watch the Jerry Rice football in live documentary. But like the the there there is like there feels like five or six years where. Every single pass, it feels like every pass that's being thrown is like Joe Montana or Steve Young to Jerry Rice and it's a touchdown. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to watch. You just never thought he couldn't make a catch. That was what, uh, that was my overriding memory of watching him play football. It, it, it's a, it is a beautiful thing to see. On my Sistine Chapel-esque ceiling of the bar, I've already oh. mentioned that Joe Montana's got pride of place. But the person above him, on, on the ceiling, the next person along is Jerry Rice, yeah. looking over his shoulder for a catch. It's a beautiful sight. The way he makes plays after the catch, which is always like, yeah. for me, like it's, it's so exciting to yeah. see that. He was just incredible at making plays after the catch. What they call the yak in the in NFL is yards after catch with Jerry Rice. I don't think it was a statistic in the 80s that they, that they used, but I would love to go back. and I wonder what his yak average was because he, was such a, he didn't look that strong. But he was so strong. You watch the, the the yards after the catch that Jay Royce consistently put on. He's so lean. Really like, he's so lean. You look at how his waistline, it feels like he's such a slim... Oh, he's a very attractive man. Oh, no, imagine, imagine him like a black tuxedo. Yeah. Oh, oh, incredible. And, um, well, that ass as well. He's got a lovely bum as well, hasn't he? I think one of the... Uh, one of the comparisons that kind of sticks is like um, is like Michael Jordan, and I think like you know in terms of his commitment yeah. to the game and in terms of being the greatest of all time, there are a lot of comparisons. Do Steve it. Young said after they won the the Super Bowl in '94, it was three days after the Super Bowl, and everyone had been celebrating it, and he had left some of his equipment at the facility, so he went back. He went back to the training ground to pick up his stuff. Steve Young did, and outside on the training ground was Jerry Rice running routes, uh, practising. How often do you hear that about the very, very, very best people in sport? Yeah. It's not just, I know it's a cliche, but it's not just the ability. 
they work harder than everybody else as well. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's David Beckham doing like four hundred free kicks after after training, right? That that doesn't surprise me that he's doing that. Absolutely. But we, we talk about Walter Payton. That you know Walter Payton's. Yeah. His off season work was. No one could keep up with it. It was absolutely brutal. Just like Walter Payton, Jerry Rice had a hill. Jerry Rice did a hill run, did yeah, as part of his training routine. It's starting to think that that's the link. That's the one link to greatness. I think is hill running. Well, that's why Wales are so good at rugby. There you go. Yeah, that's what it is. Everywhere's a hill. Everywhere is a hill. <laughs> <laughs> I got to start running up some hills, mate. That's what, you're <laughs> know, that's what I'm thinking as well. I'm going to go and find a hill. Do you know what? Going back to, to Jerry Rice's bum, right? Oh yes, yes, please. One thing that. I love about football, and certainly my wife loves about the NFL. She's not a particularly big NFL fan. Yeah. But as, as sports uniforms go, it's hard to beat the, the wide shoulders with the shoulder pads and going down to that spandex-esque bum. Well, I was going to say that, because obviously when you go on the... I, I, I'm a big fan of merch. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, you know... Arses. Well, huge fan of arses. I'm a huge fan of arses. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of football in merch, so I've got I've got yeah. about five or six, you know, different Packers shirts. But you can't you can't buy the leggings, you know, like you don't get you, leggings. You don't get many fans. You don't get many pants. You book. You don't get many fans. You know, going. Oh, have you got this season's pants? Full kit wanker and all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> going to a football game in pants yeah. and socks and all the gear on. Turning up to Bubbins Bar on a Sunday night. Just the le- just just the leggings on. <laughs> T- Tom, are you wearing football pants? Yep. <laughs> Couldn't afford the shirt. I've just gone for the leggings this season. <laughs> <laughs> a good fit. So, so much for every bum looks good in them. <laughs> um, the the uh, the documentary I watched on Jerry Rice. It opened. What a player? What a player? Opened with one of the one of the. Um, I think he was a pastor at the San Francisco 49ers. One of those guys who leads the, you know the dressing room in prayer. And it opens on him, and he says. Michael Jordan, mm. Albert Einstein, John Coltrane, Jerry Rice. They're all the same guy. <laughs> I was just like, oh, yes, please. I don't know how Albert oh. Einstein got in there. But... <laughs> <laughs> I would want him going deep with you, running a post, running a post pattern for you in the Super Bowl. <laughs> We're sticking Coltrane in. <laughs> There's a minute left. Coltrane, get in there. <laughs> what can I describe as a strange move Bill Walsh has brought on Albert Einstein <laughs> he's good read, he can read the game third and goal <laughs> get him in he's good at time management he's good at time management <laughs> oh that's good uh, so um, so yeah there you go we, that takes us to 88 and then 88 is when Bill Walsh retired well, if I had one quarterback to put in in the two minute period Montana has to be the best big game quarterback I've ever watched play. And that's it. The game is over. San Francisco has won Super Bowl 23. Jerry Rice, the hero for the 49ers. And Bill Walsh will get the ride. We wonder if it's his last as head coach. It's a very emotional clip if you see when mm. Bill Walsh is in the dressing room and uh, they kind of say, is that the last game ever coached by Bill Walsh? And he kind of breaks down into tears and hugs his son. Mm. And oh, it's, it's a really emotional clip. Was, after, was it Seifert after, after him? It was. It was George Seifert. So it was the defensive coordinator. Cool looking bloke. Really cool, but he kind of he, he comes across as a bit boring compared to Bill Walsh. It feels like. <laughs> well, this is a tough ask, though, isn't it? Imagine going in after. I always think about when you're the coach after Bill Walsh. If you're the coach after Bill Belichick, 
Yeah. You're the coach after Vince Lombardi. In that 89 season, the team wanting to go out and prove that they could win it without Bill Walsh and prove, oh, yeah. prove you know, that, well, look, there's a, re- you know, we- Bill Walsh isn't the only reason this team is successful. And that's what they did. I, was, I don't think anyone didn't give the players for the 49ers yeah. credit. They're a brilliant team, but it's interesting that they won it without him as well. That takes us to the end of the 80s, but crucially what they did then is they moved Joe Montana on and Steve Young, you know, that transition actually through those few seasons of rivalry meant that they had a successful succession. Steve mm. Young, you know, obviously took them on to win the Super Bowl in 94. Mm. They moved Joe Montana on and like, you know, Ronnie Lott says, how can you get rid of God? Kansas City is still in the chase for Joe Montana. A day after the Lions said no about Joe, his current team publicly announced, we want you back. We would like Joe to stay. Uh, We'd like him to be part of the organization. Montana was in Phoenix today. He worked out, met with the Cardinal coaching staff, and said that he, Montana, hopes to make a decision by Saturday. If Joe wants to go, I see no reason why they would want to keep him. Montana becomes the first big-name quarterback to call the signals for the Chiefs since Len Dawson retired 18 years ago. The Chiefs are hoping that Montana can take them places that only Dawson has in the history of the franchise. So, meanwhile, the Niners' offense is Steve Young's to run, assuming they can now sign him a league MVP. So when you see him playing for the Chiefs, you're like, what? Yeah. It just looked didn't look right. Brett Favre went to the Vikings. Horrible. Horrible to see. Oh, God. Yeah. It looks weird now seeing Brady, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Playing for the Buccaneers. You're like, this This doesn't look right. It just doesn't fit, but it seems to be something that happens all that. It seems to be the pattern. I think Montana would have so wanted to prove that he could go somewhere else and win. And I think that's what you see yeah. with Brady. I think like Brady's going to be maniacal to win at the Bucks, And, you know, that's what Brett Favre wanted to do. He wanted to rub it into the Packers' noses. Montana or Kansas just never looked right, did it? No, exactly. Um... George Seaford, as a head coach, won two Super Bowls. Bill Walsh won three as the head coach, but I think he was the general manager by the time uh, they won in 94. Even when Joe Montana left, that team still had Jerry Rice. They still had Steve Young. And actually, Steve Young and Jerry Rice's kind of records, I think, are even better than Joe Montana's in terms of, not in terms of Super Bowl wins, but in terms of, you know, receiving yards. Steve Young was a bit of a, Steve Young was a decent runner as well. That was the thing. He, He was a, he brought another facet to it. It was semi-tongue-in-cheek off the top, I, I, but I generally think that Steve Young is, is as good. In, in my eyes, he's, he's as good a quarterback as John Montana. I think better was probably a bit harsh. So Simon's looking at me slightly. Yeah. He's, he's warmed slightly. I think, I think we've softened you. Just like what a legacy. Jerry Rice, Joe Montana, Ronnie Lott, Randy Cross, we haven't talked about. Oh. We haven't mentioned much about Roger Craig, but I mean, there was a... Beautiful running back. Tom Rathman, who was, was, was his fullback, was, was a really good player. Obviously... What we never really get into any depth about on these things because the the way that the game's covered, we never talk about the lines. But um, he had a tremendous offensive line and they had a tremendous defensive line. Yeah, we should, the, do, do you remember Jack Hacksaw Reynolds? Yeah, of course. Do you know why he's called Jack Hacksaw Reynolds? No. Because after one college game, he lost a bowl game and he went home. He was so livid, he went back and cut his. I think he had a Cadillac. Like, he had like a, it was like his pride and joy, and he cut the car in half. <laughs> That's the, that's what you want. That's what you want. I was so pissed. I sawed my car in half. <laughs> my my favourite story about him is they said that on game day they'd go down for breakfast and he'd be sat eating breakfast in full kit and helmet. <laughs> and whenever someone There's tried a... to ask him why, he'd say, "I'm ready to play." Are you not ready to play? <laughs> we talked about John Fassender before in that lovely voice, right? 
And I think Facenda described him as, um, he was Hollywood handsome, but cowboy tough. I was like, oh, <laughs> that is one of the best things I've ever heard. I tell you, I, that's what I want to be. I want, I want to be Hollywood handsome and cowboy tough. I'll tell you what, Mike, I'm writing it into my next introduction for you. <laughs> you know what's sad? People try to give themselves a nickname. I keep saying that I'm Hollywood handsome and cowboy tough. At some point, someone will describe me as that. Mate, wait, episode V, when we come back in episode V. <laughs> episode V. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Well, yeah, there we go. The San Francisco 49ers of the 80s. Julian Edelman grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and his hero was Jerry Rice. I heard that Julian Edelman took Jerry Rice's daughter to the prom. That's a weird thing, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs>